feel like I should have one of those like <clears throat> drums strapped on my back with a cymbal where I can just do all the, all the, things, <laughs> all the things at once. Uh, today is a case study in that church should never be a, a one-person band. Um, it should always be a community effort, and we look forward to having folks back over the next few weeks. And thanks for bearing with us uh, during a weird one. I don't know about you, but um, over the past few weeks, you know, I've spent a lot of time in, in thought and prayer. We've been following the, the conflicts over in, in the Middle East between, you know, versus Israel and in Gaza and, and Hamas and all the, all the things that surround those, those complicated things. And, and we've just been grieving with sadness over the, the violence of this century-old conflict. And our thoughts and our prayers are with, with those who are suffering and hurting, regardless of, of the sides. There's just there's so much pain and animosity that sometimes all you can do is just pray for the Lord to intervene in whatever way he sees fit. You know? uh, one of the challenges with that conflict is that a lot of times when we think of that region, we don't even really know how to pray. Right? We all have our, our biases and our understandings of what's going on in that region, but we, we don't really know. And, and, and I'm, honest, kind of, I'm kind of convinced that there's not a human on this earth who really genuinely understands every nuance of that conflict, right? You can have experts on TV or, you know, YouTube telling you everything they know about how that all came to be, but I don't know that we really fully will ever understand it. And, and I'm, I'm convinced of one thing, though, when I look at that region, and that's this. I'm not sure that that will ever be solved on this side of heaven, Right? Whatever, whatever you think about what's going on there, it's something that I look at and go, man, like short of the Lord coming back, uh, you know, it's one of those things that I'm not so convinced will ever be made right again. And so we long for that day. And so when we look at what's happening over there, perhaps the best prayer that we can offer is, Lord, come back soon. Amen? Because that's the, the hope, is there's a day when that conflict is a thing of history because the Lord has returned and, and all is back to the, the glorious way that it should be right now. I don't, I don't bring that up because, it, it, you know, it, it, because we feel like we need to. It's, it's a week of, of conflict, and I think we need to address it. But I, I bring up that conflict to, not to take a political stance, but to, to, to point to something bigger, and that's that there are certain things in this world, there's certain violences, there's certain conflict, there's certain strife, there's certain you know, politics or whatever it is that you, you want to get into that just outside of, outside of the Lord are things that we just don't understand and, and can't really work towards a resolution for. Right? There are things happening in this world, large and small, right? That's one of them. But I, you know, if you look at the politics of our country, I'm not sure that that'll ever be made right until Jesus comes back either. There's such a deep-seated uh, distrust and, and hatred among various uh, thoughts and groups and ideas about how the, the country here should even run, forget the world, that there's just these things, right? And, and, and all we do when we look at a place like Israel is we see it just amplified. But, but there's a deeper-rooted strife that exists in the world that, that I think is not going to be solved or resolvable by our own human merits, now, we've been working our way through this series of the Minor Prophets, and we're starting the, the back half of them today, right? We finished up with, with Micah, and today we are looking at the prophet Nahum. Um, who here, it's the first time you've ever heard the word Nahum. Don't feel shy raising your hand. Yeah. <laughs> Did you know there was a book of Nahum in the Bible? 
Maybe you did, maybe you didn't, right? It's one of those minor, minor, minor prophets. You know, everybody maybe heard of Micah, but when you go to Nahum, it's a little bit different. And as I was reading through scripture this week and, and praying for the, the conflict that we've been seeing on the news, I found a lot of comfort in the prophetic writings of the prophet Nahum. And that's really odd because the book of Nahum is essentially a, a three-chapter, harsh, detailed judgment account of, of the city of, of Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. So, so really, it's, it's three chapters of God through Nahum just talking about how, he, how exactly, in grand detail, he's going to just utterly desolate the city of Nineveh and through it the empire of Assyria. So how, how do you find hope? How do I find comfort with things and conflicts that we see today by looking at a manifesto of destruction of God's wrath? That doesn't seem to be something that lines up. So this morning, I want to spend just a little bit of time digging into the, the prophet, prophetic writings of Nahum, and maybe together we can discover how there is some comfort and hope for God's people inside of that kind of a writing, right? So first, some background. We don't know a whole lot about Nahum. Um, he is, we're told, from the village of Elkosh, and we don't really know anything about Elkosh either, except for one thing, which is kind of neat. There's kind of a scholar debate, uh, largely agreement, but it's not, not 100%. But we think that the city of Elkosh eventually renamed and became the, the city that you read in the New Testament through Jesus of Capernaum. Right? And many of us might know the city of Capernaum, but the word Capernaum literally means village of Nahum. So I wonder if Nahum's writings were just so well known, they, they literally named the city after the guy uh, when all was said and done. So this is a little bit of an aside, right? Nahum writes around 630, 663 to 612 BC, somewhere in that pocket. The, the reason we know that is because he's writing about things that happened immediately before, and he's writing about things to come that happened immediately after, and so that's kind of the window that we're, we're given, right? The book is only three chapters long. Chapters 2 and 3 are literally a detailed account of the destruction of chapter 2, the city of Nineveh, and then later the, the whole of the Assyrian Empire becoming dismantled to the point where there will be no offspring of the Assyrians to exist on the face of the earth. He just wipes them clean, right? And it's just an account of what the siege of the city actually looks like. And it's pretty gruesome if you want to spend some time in that. If you think the Bible's boring, Nahum 2 and 3 is some great reading for you. It'll give you a, a nice little battle scene of how the Lord just lays a city to waste, right? That is against God's people. But chapter 1 is this opening poem. And that's what we'll look at in just a little more detail this morning. In the city of Nineveh, if, if, if Nineveh sounds familiar to you, that's because a few weeks ago when we talked about the book of Jonah, Nineveh was the city that Jonah didn't want to go to, right? It was that evil city, more torturous than any other. They were the most wicked place that you can imagine. And when God asks Jonah to go to Nineveh, he flees to the very opposite ends of the earth. He goes to modern-day southern Spain across the Mediterranean Sea to get away from Nineveh. And at the end, the book of Jonah ends with God calling Nineveh to judgment and repentance, and the city repents and follows the Lord, right? The king of Nineveh repents. He calls everybody else to put on sackcloth and ashes and repent, and the city is spared. God relents his judgment. He doesn't condemn them, and Jonah's mad because they are Israel's enemy. And he wants God to deal with Israel's enemy even though they repent and now follow after the Lord. Well, when we get to the book of Nahum, we can see that we're about 150 years later, 
And, and what happened is Nineveh's repentance kind of went to the wayside. They're not following the Lord the way they initially turned and promised to. They're kind of back to their old ways. As a matter of fact, now they've not only gone back to their old ways, we're talking past 722, so they've actually conquered the northern half of Israel's kingdom, laid them to complete waste, and the the northern half of the kingdom is exiled under Assyrian rule at this point. And so the, the, the God's people, the Israelites, they're suffering at the hand of the Assyrian Empire that has not only not stuck with the Lord, but come back with a vengeance worse than ever. And so Nahum is prophesying in the midst of that time when the Israelites find themselves in exile under the harsh thumb of the Assyrian Empire. That's the context of this book, right? So Nahum is, do, is doing that and we're, we're, we're talking about an empire that has conquered territory so big, they, they've got most of Egypt at this point, way south and around the Mediterranean, way south of where, where the coast, where the, the west coast would be, sorry, the east coast would be, right? They have amassed a massive territory of massive, massive proportions. Assyria is the global empire superpower during this time. And so when, when the Lord through Nahum starts to say things like they're going to be laid to waste, it's something that the world at that time couldn't even fathom happening. Right? It would be like a prophecy in Paul's day of Rome will fall in one day. No, they won't. Rome's too big to fall in a day. Right? And so one of the things we'll see in the book of Nahum is the absolute breathtaking power of the Lord to be able to have empires rise and fall at his will no matter how powerful or large they are. And that's something for us as Christians to take notice of, right? But Jonah foretells this doom, and in 612 BC, Nineveh falls exactly like he described to the Babylonian Empire. They are completely and utterly destroyed, just as Nahum predicted. So the prophecy holds true, and we can look at history both in terms of Scripture itself and what God's Word says, but also just history outside of Scripture to confirm that these are events that truly actually happened. But what we really get when we look at chapter 1 is a deep dive into the character study of the nature of God's anger. And that's where I want to spend some time today. So everybody put your smiling hats on. We're going to talk about God's anger today. But, but it's not just a, the Lord is angry, but we get to actually see a nuanced look at how God's anger, his wrath, actually works. And in the midst of that, we find a lot of hope. So let's stand together as we read the words of Nahum. We'll just read all of chapter 1. It's an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord 
is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. And he will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. And thus says the Lord, though they are of full strength in many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break this yoke from you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandments about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The word of the Lord. Have a seat. All right, who's feeling the joy of this morning? <laughs> um, so there, there's a lot going on here, so let's, let's unpack a couple of the things we see, and then we'll look at, I, I promise you there is hope in here that I'm not just making up, but it's, it's, it's evident in the text when we start to dig in a little more. The first line we see is that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God, right? And we have a problem with a passage like this because we, we don't really know what it means because for us, we tend to have a very def- different definition of what jealousy is. Right? There's really not a scenario in our minds where, where jealousy isn't a bad thing. Any of you have you know, a jealous spouse or partner and you, and you go, yeah, that, that, that's a great thing. I really just love when they're jealous. Or do you ever just have a jealousy over the stuff that your neighbor has and you go, you know, this is a great emotion to feel. Every time I feel jealous, it's just such joy in my heart. I feel great about myself. You know, I love that their lawn tractor is bigger than mine or that their grill is newer than mine or that their kitchen's more updated than mine. It makes me feel happy inside to be jealous. No, jealousy is something we always think of as bad. However, jealousy itself is not a bad thing. It's the motives and the expressions of jealousy where we find sinfulness. Right? And so for the, for the Lord, there's a jealousy that, that he exudes that is very different. There is such a thing as a righteous jealousy, and this is what we see from God here. God's jealousy arises from the fact that he wants us to follow him for his glory, and we instead follow the devices of our own hearts. He is jealous for our attention and our minds and our, and our obedience, but his jealousy isn't self-centered like ours would be. His jealousy is out of an abundance of love for you and for me. And so God creates the world. He speaks it into being. He sets it up to be a certain way in order to create the greatest amount of human flourishing. And then he watches his creation be squandered by people that move in ways opposite him. When you walk in sin, what God knows is that you would be better off if you walked in his ways than when you walk in that sin. The same way that you sometimes will watch as a parent your children make decisions that are, seem right in the moment, but you know where those decisions will lead because you're an adult who's lived life and understands the consequences of those actions. Right? The Lord knows that when you walk in ways contrary to him, it is not going to go as well for you as if when you walked with the Lord. 
Even when it doesn't seem like it in the moment, even when it seems like it would be more gratifying to follow our own paths, God knows in his infinite knowledge that walking with him is better. And so anytime you don't, he gets jealous for you because he wants you to have the best you can have. And he wants the world to be the best it can be. And so his jealousy is, is a jealousy born out of a sadness of watching us squander what could be. That's what it means when we see that God is a jealous God. It's a jealousy that is birthed out of love. Now, the next thing we see is that in the midst of all of this judgment and wrath, we, we see these couple bright spots, and they're, they're kind of seemingly random, right? The first is this. You know, the Lord is jealous and avenging God. He's avenging, wrathful, takes vengeance on his adversaries, keeps wrath for his enemies. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger. And great in power, he'll, he'll by no means clear the guilty. So there's all this language about how the Lord is angry, wrathful, crushes the enemy, about to take everybody out, or then it's just in there, like buried deep, just out of the blue, very casually. Well, the Lord is slow to anger. What does that mean? It means that the Lord is not a moody God. God didn't judge or pronounce the end of the city of Nineveh because he woke up on the wrong side of the bed that morning. God's anger and wrath is never arbitrary, never off the cuff, never unplanned, never unthought of. God doesn't get angry in a way that we do when we stub our toe or our kids drive us crazy and we just lose it. He is slow to anger. And part of why I mentioned Jonah to you is we look at the Lord has been working with and pushing the city of Nineveh, towards him forever, right? There's 150 years between when he calls them to repentance under Jonah and judges them then and threatens them then and, and relents because they listen all the way down to when they are actually judged. 150 years. Husbands, wives, do you have that level of patience? Does that, like, does that sound like someone who's irrationally anger? Angry? No. 150 years, the Lord is slow to anger. God doesn't just get mad because something happens and he off the cuff decides to to smite you. No, his anger is slow to arise. There is a patience that that God exudes. But when his anger comes, it is justified, well thought out, well deserved, and after a long time of trying to reason with the people. It's important that we understand that. Because a lot of times we see God doing things angrily in Scripture, and we go, man, he must be a grouch. He said, no. Quite the opposite. He gives every opportunity. His desire is for all to come to him, to repent, to understand, and walk in the ways that he calls us to. He is a God who is slow to anger. It's careful and calculated. And after much effort to the contrary, when God finally decides to judge a city, a nation, a people. It's not off the cuff. God does not have anger issues the way some of us do. Verse 7 shows us then this almost kind of break screeching change in the text, right? We're all through, you know, everything is awful. Who can stand? I will take them out. His wrath is poured out like fire. And then verse 7 comes out of the blue and just says, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. 
He knows those who take refuge in him. And then it goes back to, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adverse. Right? All this death and gloomy language is just broken up with, all of a sudden, the Lord is good. Right? God's not just a powerful guy in the sky with an anger problem. He is an infinitely good God. One of the things we, we do in our world is we juxtapose anger and goodness when it comes to God. Often have you heard that a loving God would never wipe out a whole people group, right? We, we somehow say that if, if God was good, then he couldn't be wrathful or angry, as if those two are actually opposites. But goodness and angry wrath are not opposites. They can stand together, right? How can wrathful anger be good? Well, it's this. It speaks to the justice of the Lord that has to be satisfied, if God didn't punish sin, would he actually be good? Right? The saying goes that if, if God wasn't just, if God didn't punish sin, one of two things would have to be true. Number one, he wouldn't be good because he wouldn't be fair or just. Or number two, he wouldn't be all-powerful. He would want to but wouldn't be able to. And so the only way for, for God to actually be all-good and all-powerful is to judge sin, to punish evil when he sees it in the world. If you're a parent who never disciplines your child, you're neither good nor powerful. The Lord is perfectly fair, perfectly just. God's justice is perfect in the way that the created order was set up. And part of that perfect justice means when sin enters, it must be dealt with in order for the world to continue to function the way it does. For the created order to be perfect, sin must be punished. And God's goodness makes his wrath absolutely necessary. They are not opposite ideas. They go hand in hand together. Right. The last thing to note is that this poem, this chapter one, is, is both broader than Assyria and also kind of more narrow than Assyria in some ways, right? God's anger and wrath and all that comes with it it is doled out when you look at this, this text only upon one group of people, his adversaries, his enemies. Okay. God's anger is always aimed at human sin and anything that runs contrary to his ways. That's what, what his wrath is. God's wrath is not an anger towards a people group because they're a people group. God didn't annihilate the Assyrians because they were Assyrian. He annihilated them because they were a sinful, wicked, deeply revert, averse to God people that earned the judgment that the Lord gave after centuries of, of trying to work with them. Right? That's what, that's what this, this is. This is what's happening here. And so God's wrath and anger are always aimed at sin. And so who are his enemies? Well, all who sin against his ways. You say, hold a second. Uh, that includes me. That's pretty scary, Vince. So, so when I walk in any kind of a sin, which, you know, raise your hand if you walk in sin. All of us do, right? If your hand's not up, you're a liar, right? <laughs> no offense. Pastor, I came to that church and he called me a liar. He's the worst, right? But we all walk in sin. And so in a way, we are all at times functioning as God's enemies. And so you might say, well, wait, uh, what do I do with that? And, and you'd be right, except for one little detail, and that's Jesus Christ, right? And we actually get a glimpse of Jesus himself when we look at this chapter. 
If you look towards the end in 15, there's a phrase, there's a verse there. It says, behold upon the mountains, this is how it ends, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This phrase is not just in Nahum, but it shows up in a bunch of other places as well. If you look at um, Isaiah chapter 52, you'll see that exact phrase. As a matter of fact, when we go through Advent and Christmas Eve, one of the things we quote is Isaiah 52, when we talk about the coming of Jesus, the birth of Christ. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. And you'll see the New Testament picks this phrase up. You'll see it show up with Paul writing to the Ephesians in chapter 2 or to the Romans in chapter 10. All throughout this, behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news. It's a clear allusion to Jesus. And so why bring up Jesus in the midst of all this discussion of God's judgment? Well, because ultimately that's what Nahum is trying to point toward and allude to. Right? The book might be an account of Assyria's destruction, but it has a way broader application. The main thrust of Nahum is that over all time and history, present and future, God will destroy his enemies and judge all evil. Just like God dealt with the empire of Assyria, there's not an empire past, present, or future that God can't deal with. There's not an enemy past, present, or future that is too big for God to handle in the service of ushering in his kingdom and restoring his people. You can't come up with one. It doesn't matter how much evil you observe in this world, how atrocious it is, how self-centered it is, how malicious it is, how heartless it is, and how strong it is, the Lord can and will deal with all that stand in the way of the way that God wants things to work. And he will judge every enemy that stands in his way. And Assyria for Nahum is a case study. He goes, look, it's the greatest empire that ever was at that time. If God can deal with them, God can deal with anything. That's what he's trying to say. He will destroy his enemies. And Nahum speaks to God's immense power and capability and justice. And then he uses Nineveh to illustrate that there is no empire above the hand of God. And Jesus is there in verse 15 as this beacon of hope for us. Because the reality is that God's anger against sin and evil doesn't stop with his people. God promises to judge and destroy all evil and sin. And so we're all under judgment but Jesus bought it. Right? Jesus paid the price. A lot of times we like to think that as people under Christ, our sins are forgiven. That's, that's not what happens. Your sins aren't forgiven. They're paid for. Right? Your debt is, is not canceled. It's, it's paid on your behalf. When, when, when Jesus went to the cross and, and died, and took, we say he took the punishment of sin, that, that's what we're talking about. Jesus suffering on the cross and dying, he took the punishment for every single one of the sins of those who call upon his name. So your sin isn't wiped out. It's paid for by someone else. You didn't go to the restaurant and order food and the restaurant said it's free. You went to the restaurant and ordered food, 
couldn't pay the bill because you were broke and someone three tables down said, I've got it and swiped their card instead. That's what happened with human sin. And so we forget that it's not just wiped away, but paid for. God's wrath against our sin was never spared. There's not an ounce of wrath or punishment for any sin ever committed, past, present, or future, that wasn't taken upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why it's such an atrocious death. But the Lord took it. And so verse 15 is an announcement of relief of those who belong to Christ. You aren't spared. You're not you're shielded from it by Jesus. When you breathe your last and stand before your Creator, you'll give an account for all your sin, and Christ will step in and say, no, this one's mine. I, I, I paid for him or her already. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well, what did you do? You followed Jesus. It's the only credit you have to your name. It's the only reason that you don't share the same fate as the Assyrians or any other empire that came before or will come after them. And so Nahum is a reminder that God will effectively and finally deal with every evil, every sin, every conflict, no matter how big and small, every politic that goes contrary to God's word, uh, whether it's conservative or liberal or otherwise, doesn't matter. The Lord will deal with everything that goes against him. And yes, every evil conflict will be resolved and all evil abolished and punished, either harshly by God to the people committing it or doled out to Jesus as our substitute for those of us who call on the name of Christ. And so guys, when you look around or read the news and when you pray for conflicts, when you observe these painful evil like we're seeing in in Israel and Hamas, our response should be to pray for God to come quickly and do what he does best. And we pray for the day when evil is no more and pain is no more and violence is no more. And sorrow is no more, and suffering is no more, and disease is no more, and death is no more. Let's pray to that end this morning. Lord, we, we grieve the evil in this world, as we know that you do too. We share the pain of those suffering and in ways that we don't even understand. We don't know how to pray sometimes. We don't know what to ask for. We don't know what deliverance even looks like. But God, we trust that you do. We trust that as we run around trying to figure out how to resolve the world's conflicts, Lord, that you already have a plan. That you know what this world will look like 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years from now. You know the day of your return, Father, and we don't. And so we pray that it be sooner rather than later. We ask that in the midst of all these struggles, you would come, Lord Jesus. We ask that you would be the God of healing in places where violence runs rampant. We ask that you would be the God of peace in places where strife seems unresolvable. We ask that you would lend your peace to places like the Middle East, the houses of Congress in our country, our homes, our schools, our cities. Be with us, 
Guide us. Help us be the people that bear the good news. Lord, when it talks about Jesus being the feet of the ones who bring good news, Lord, we pray that we might be Jesus' hands and feet and be a part of the people that bring good news to all. We pray to that end. We love you and we praise you. And all God's people said,